Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you're lacking a Bible this morning, just lift up your hand. We'll get one over to you right now. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read um, starting at verse 15 and read on down through verse 21. And let's, as we're reading this, let's recognize that Paul wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago, but he wrote it as he was carried along by the Spirit of God. So this is the Word of God that we're reading. And though he was writing it to a church in Ephesus a long time ago, it's not just a word for the church in Ephesus, it's a word for the church in Harbins as well. So let's read this as a word to us, and, and let's pray that God will help us to see what he wants us to, to know from this word this morning that Paul wrote so long ago. Word of God says, starting in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to us this morning through the word. We can't understand the word without help from the Spirit, so Spirit, come. Spirit, come. Open open our minds and open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you and know what the will of the Lord is. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. <clears throat> Some mornings, we're kind of small this morning. I'm actually going to shift my podium down here like I used to do when we were at the school because I'd rather be right down here when we've got this small of a group and um, right here with you guys and not feel like I'm up in the sky somewhere talking to you. So I'm going to bring this down here. I want us to, um, <clears throat> to really think through what the Lord's speaking to us in this word today, um, I think every pastor, if he's honest with you, will tell you that he feels totally inadequate um, to bring God's Word on any occasion. But there are some occasions, sometimes when you feel extra inadequate, and that's certainly how I feel this morning, um, a little extra inadequate, because I just feel a little distracted this morning. I think we all perhaps are feeling a little distracted, and I think the warfare has been thick this morning, and uh, so... I just want to pray again before we get started and ask the Lord to, um, to, to center us in on his word because what Satan wants is for us to be distracted because he hates what Paul's talking about here. He hates this concept of walking a walk that brings God glory. So let's just uh, let's pray again real quick. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you right now. Lord, we confess to you that we have uh, many things in our hearts and our minds, and I have many myself that are distractions, Lord, that may be causing us not to, to hear you this morning. But I pray that we'd set those aside, that we would confess our sins, Lord, that if there be anything, Lord, that we um, right now are harboring in our hearts, anger, 
um, bitterness, uh, just sinful attitudes, uh, uh, sinful uh, practices, whatever it might be that we have not repented of, Lord, that we would do that now and that we would uh, let you take our hearts and bruise our hearts, make them tender so that we can receive your word the right way this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading an article yesterday as I was thinking about this message, and um, I, I saw a picture of a, of a golf coach, and he was coaching one of these professional PGA guys, and he had this digital camera that he had set up while the PGA guy was doing his swing, um, and then they were looking at the picture of it back together. They were watching, look at this digital um, video image of his, uh, of his swing. And, uh, you know, these, these, and I was amazed at how much these PGA guys pay someone to coach them on their swing. And so they pay people to give them input and insight into their swing, and they look over that swing diligently. And they, they, they watch every little detail about it. If their game begins to get, get off a little bit, they examine that, that swing down to the, the most minute detail, and they pay people lots of money to help them do that so that they can get that swing right because their job, their task is to keep this little ball in the middle of this course. Unlike me, that's not my job. That's not what I'm paid for and I can't do it anyway. These people are paid to do that. That's their task is to keep that ball where it's supposed to be. So Mark's already analyzing my swing right now and he knows why I can't keep that ball in the middle of the course. But I got to thinking about that and how meticulous these guys are And that's what Paul's calling us to today with our walk. We get to a point in this text where Paul's telling us to look carefully how you walk. Examine it. Analyze it. Pay attention to what you're doing because our task as believers is to stay on that path, to stay on that walk that God has given us to do. And when we begin to veer from it, when we begin to get off, when we begin to make sinful mistakes, we need to be looking very closely at how we walk And so, this morning, we get to this text here, and we're continuing with this application portion of the book of Ephesians, where Paul has uh, taken us through chapters 4 through 6, is is the application portion, after he had given us this tremendous, glorious gospel message in chapters 1 through 3. And so, he's, he's challenging us to to put into practice, there's ethical implications to this eternal plan that he's been presenting to us in, in chapters 1 through 3. And uh, in this section here, um, Paul focuses on our walk. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he had mentioned that he wanted us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then later in that same chapter, in verse 17, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles do. And so then when we get to chapter 5, he gives us three elements to this walk. We talked about that last week. And we'll see if I can get my clicker working this morning. But here they were. It's a walk of love, Ephesians 5.2. This walk that we're called to, to be on that's worthy of our calling, that's different than the world. It's a walk of light. And that's where we were last week in Ephesians 5.8. And today we want to look at this walk of wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, as we get into this text, there are three demonstrations of wise walking that I want us to notice in verses 16 through 18. And then we'll notice four outcomes of that third demonstration. Now, there is no way on earth that I'm going to be able to get that outline done today. 
I'm hoping to get past point one today and get the first two uh, demonstrations of this walk of wisdom that Paul speaks of here. If I don't get to number two, we'll just make it a three-part sermon and we'll continue going. But this is the walk of wisdom. We are to look carefully at how we walk. He wants us to examine. He wants us to test our walk and our lifestyle. Our behavior is important and should be under a process of constant examination. We are to look at our life vigilantly. This word here, look carefully, or this phrase, look carefully how you walk. Okay, It may say in your translation, see then that you walk circumspectly. This word circumspectly means to, to look around. Like, like you're crossing a road and you want to look both ways. You want to look all around before you cross that road. You want to be vigilant. You want to be careful. We're always to be looking around, looking at our life, looking at what we're doing, all aspects of our life. Circumspectly means looking at everything and make sure we're walking wisely. Wisdom belongs to the one who knows Christ and who's been made new in Him. We were once fools, but now we walk in wisdom according to the Scriptures. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, but we know the Scripture teaches that if we're in Christ, we've been saved out of foolishness, brought into wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, You are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. We have been saved out of the foolish, dark world, and we've been placed in Christ and in Him. We have His wisdom and therefore are now to do what He calls us to do in this text as well as Colossians 4, 5, which says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, before we go any further, we need to understand what Paul's concept of wisdom is here. There was a difference in Paul's day and there's a difference in our day between a Jewish concept of wisdom and the Greek concept of wisdom. The Jewish concept of wisdom meant a wisdom that is reflected in your actions. It's not just intelligent. It's not just what you have up here. It's not just your mental um, uh, grasping of what God's saying. The Greek concept of wisdom is all intellectual. Wisdom had to do with what you knew up here. But the Jewish concept of wisdom had to do with your actions. The book of Proverbs is all about that. About how we act, how we behave, how the wise man... Um, lives his life. And that's what wisdom is. It's, the, it's, it's, it's not just our thought process. It's our actions as well. We're called to walk in wisdom. We're called to have a vigilant walk of wisdom. So the, so the, what I'm gonna, the phrase I want to kind of keep coming back to this morning is this. The person who walks the vigilant walk of wisdom, and then I'm going to give us three elements of that. And here's the first one. The person who walks in the vigilant walk of wisdom, number one, recognizes that time is a precious God-given commodity to be used for His glory. That time is a precious God-given commodity to be used for His glory. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. This phrase, making the best use, is actually a marketplace term which refers to buying back or redeeming. You've heard the phrase, or it may even say in your translation, to redeem the time. It's because that's what this phrase, making the best use, means. It means to purchase something back. So that's why I've used the word commodity up there. Time is something valuable. Time is something precious. Time is, is, is something that is, that is so important to us that we should be looking at it as a precious commodity in our life that's not to be wasted in any sort of way. I, I, 
just went online and I, I, I wanted to see what the world's most precious commodity is. And I was expecting, what, diamonds or gold or something. But you know what they say the world's most precious commodity is? It's water. In our day and age, there's so many people that don't have clean drinking water. And water is considered the world's most precious commodity. Well, I would say that actually above that is time. Time is our most precious commodity. It's been given to us by God. It is precious, valuable, and it is not to be wasted. I read this quote this week. It says, this is a person speaking, saying, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make big choices in life. No one wants to die, and yet death is the destination we all share. Your time is limited, so don't waste it. Do you know who said that? That was Steve Jobs in a uh, speech about four years ago. Steve Jobs' time ran out this week. That time that he recognized was so precious and was such an important commodity, something not to be wasted, for him it's gone. It's done. His commodity of time ran out this week. Christians are to redeem that time. We are to make the best use of it. We are to make the most of it. We are to use it for God's glory and not for ourselves, not for our sin, and most certainly not for Satan. Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 12, this is one of my favorite verses, says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart or may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is found in the man who knows how to use his time well. One of the greatest ways that Satan can get believers to act like fools is to get us to waste our days and to waste our time. Now, let's look at what, what Paul means here by this word time. Okay, there, There's two words, Greek words, for the word time in the Scriptures. The first one is the word chronos. Okay? which you would recognize that chronology comes from that word. Um, chronos uh, refers to seconds, minutes, hours, uh, amounts of time. But then there's the word kairos, which is the word that Paul uses here. The word kairos refers to an age or an epoch or a period of time. So the idea here is that God has given each one of us a period of time, a block of time. He's, been, he's given it to us, he's set us on this earth, and he's assigned an era, an epoch, a block of time to each single person, and it is a gift, and it is not to be wasted. We are to make the most of our opportunity that we've been given. We are to make the most of this block of time that we've been given. Why? Because the days are evil. Because we live in a world of darkness. We live in the end times. The, the, the end times began when Jesus ascended back to the Father. The, these are the, the last days. We have been entrusted with a block of time to be used for God's glory in the midst of these last days to shine forth His gospel truth in a dark and sinful world. Our era, our block of time is to be used for gospel purposes for the spreading of His fame around this globe, and we are to do it while we still have time, while the world still has time. Our era, our block of time, is to be aimed at the glory of God and the furtherance of His kingdom. So going back to Steve Jobs, did he use his block, his era of time wisely? 
There's no doubt he was a gifted man. Heard someone this week call him the Thomas Edison of our age. He was a visionary. He was a genius. He was a very talented. He was artistic. The question is, what was all of that aimed at? What was the purpose of that life that he lived? Well, how did he see it? Well, he was sharing a story in that same speech about how his life had had some very unusual circumstances that happened in his past that played a big part in what he did in the future, what he did once he began to create Apple. And this is what he said. He said, so you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. Talking about different things that have happened in your life. You have to trust that somehow the dots will connect in your future. You have to trust in something. And here's what he said. Your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down. And it's made all the difference in my life. Now I don't know Steve Jobs' final days on this earth and I pray and hope that, that, that he heard and responded to and submitted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't have any evidence that that's happened. All I know is what he said here is very sad. Unless Steve Jobs at some point has encountered the one true God before he passed away, he died using his platform to point towards what? Here he was in 2005 with a platform given to him by all this creative genius that God had entrusted him with. And he has a platform. And what does he point people to when he has the platform? Your gut. Destiny. Life. Karma. Or whatever. The last one's what gets me. Or, or whatever. That's, that's the way the world lives today. Whatever. Whatever. It's sad. It's sad to me because... Steve Jobs was a very talented man. He had been entrusted more than just with an epic of time. He had been entrusted with tremendous gifts and talents. And he was made that way so that he might image God. A creative God. I mean, when you make an iPhone, that images something about a God. The one true God who created us in His image. And so... That creative genius and all that talent, all that time you have, it's meant to point towards something. It's not meant to point to your gut or whatever. It's meant to point to the one true God. God created time. He established the order of this universe into days and weeks and months and years. He did it at creation. Genesis teaches us that time is a created thing and that it's very valuable. And God ordained that within that created order of time, that chronos, a specific block of time, a kairos, will be given to each and every one of us, to you and to me. Acts 17, 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. Those are that, that kairos. Having determined allotted epochs, places that we were to be. Allotted time, periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place is what Paul goes on to say. In light of that truth, so now we got time down. In light of that truth, how should we walk? What is a wise walk? What is a life that recognizes time as a precious and God-given commodity? Well, I think it means for at least one thing that we're going to live with urgency. There's urgency about this life. We don't know how much our epoch is, how much time we have. 
You guys may be aware that in Decula this week, a high school student passed away. In gym class, had a blood clot, and died. And it was a sad thing to see his family on TV or a news conference, and his mom was just weeping and weeping and weeping and wanting answers. And she wasn't expecting that epic, that era, that Kairos to be so short for her son. But it was. God has assigned allotted times to each and every person on this earth. It is his prerogative to decide how long that is. We should live with an urgency. I heard a story while, while um, studying for this message. I came across a story of a Romanian um, couple who lived in Romania during the Iron Curtain. And when Romania was one of the worst countries on the earth when it came to violent persecution of Christians. And there was this, this violent, horrible persecution that just overwhelmed the church in Romania at that time. And they got out of Romania and came to the States. And uh, the, the story goes that the, the wife was talking to the husband and said something like, well, tomorrow let's do this. And they both stopped and realized, they looked at each other and said, you know, that's the first time we've said the word tomorrow in 10 years. Because they lived a life of urgency. They, didn't, they knew with the persecution that they were under that their, their kairos could in any moment. And they lived a life of constant urgency. The gospel is of utmost importance. We don't know if we have a tomorrow. This couple had not said the word tomorrow in 10 years. And they came to the comfort of our society and could say it. And we praise God that we have a freedom here. But our freedom can sometimes cause us to live with a lack of urgency that we should have as true believers in Christ. We also live with a focus and an aim and a purpose. Psalm 39.4, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is noth- as nothing before you. We should be praying that prayer that David prayed right there. Oh Lord, make me aware of how fleeting my days are. Make me aware of how small the time is that you've given me on this earth. I don't care if you live to 80 or only 8. You've only been given a small time in comparison with God's created order. And we need to recognize that and live with focus and aim and purpose. We must look for opportunities. That's what circumspectly is all about. You're looking around. Looking, looking, looking. The word circumspectly, you can figure out that word, the the word circle, circumference is in that word. You're looking around. And so a, a wise life that lives circumspectly is a life that's looking for opportunities because the time is so short and the days are so evil. We must take care and not waste the time that we do have. And that's such a challenge in the era of TV and Facebook and Twitter and Google and everything else that we have that could possibly distract us from our task. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do any of those things. What I'm saying is everything we do, even if it's those things, should be pointed to the glory of God. And there's things we do, even good things we do, that sometimes are just a waste of our time. Do we really need to be worrying about that? Do we really need to be 
taking time to do that? What will we fill this epic, this block of time with? I love the, um, you've, y'all probably heard it, and I can't remember what preacher first said it, but you, know, you, you, you look at a gravestone and you see two dates on a gravestone. There's the birth date and then there's the date that the person passed away. And I heard someone say once that those two dates are the least important thing on that tombstone. The most important thing on that tombstone is the little dash that's between the two dates, the thing that goes unnoticed. That dash, that question is, what are you going to do with your dash? What are you going to do with that little dash? You don't know how long it's going to be. The question is, what are you going to do with it while you have it? What are we going to concentrate our energies on? What's the best use of our time? What activities bring Him glory? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you know the verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If God wants our eating and our drinking to glorify Him, which are pretty simple tasks, it doesn't get much more mundane than that. Eating and drinking, we do that every day, three times a day. Some of us more than that. Okay? It doesn't get much more mundane than that. And those mundane, ordinary things are to point towards God and glorify Him. How much more everything else He's entrusted us with? How much more schooling children? How much more our jobs? How much more our interaction with neighbors and friends, relatives? For this reason, idleness is not a virtue. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul tells the brothers to admonish the idle. And the wise man takes all of this into account. The wise man prays about how to use his time because the days are evil. And I say sometimes I feel more inadequate than others to get up here. It's because as I say these things, I am terribly convicted. Because I know I'm a time waster. I have a, have a little picture on my desktop, on my computer that says the Bermuda Triangle of Productivity, and it shows uh, Gmail, Facebook, and Twitter, and this little ship going down right in between all three of them. Okay, that, because I, I'm, I am so easily distracted. I am so easily caught off guard. I so easily fail to take advantage of opportunities that are presented to me. I've really been convicted lately, and God's, I think, thankfully, begin to open up some conversations just in my neighborhood because I haven't really done much at all to try to reach my neighbors or minister to my neighbors or talk to my neighbors even. And I've had plenty of opportunities. The epoch of time has been there. I've wasted five years of it. And so I say these things as a brother who is going through the same struggles you're going through as we hear this challenge to, to make the best use of our time. Luke twenty one thirty four. Jesus says, Watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He's referring to his return. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We'll get to Ephesians 6 eventually. And in Ephesians 6, it says this, after the whole discussion of the armor of God, Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's the lifestyle we're called to. Alertness, circumspect lifestyle, paying attention, looking for opportunities. You may say, well, what about leisure? What about rest, relaxation, and fun? How about that? Is there time for those things? 
Do we have to be so serious and stoic all the time? Always going, burning the candle at both ends because these are the last days, the evil days? Is it possible that we can take this call for the best use of our time too far? Well, I don't think we can take it too far, but I will say this. That genuine rest and relaxation, leisure and even fun, yes, even fun, are part of what it means to make the best use of our time. But it too, our leisure must also have a laser-like focus on the glory of God. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven is what Solomon taught us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And if you know that whole poetic uh, song that follows after that, you know one of the things that he mentions is a time to laugh. There's a time to laugh. God took leisure and rest seriously, didn't he? I said it just a minute ago, in Genesis, he establishes time, he creates time. Well, he also created and ordained rest. He ordained a Sabbath. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, we image God best when we also rest. And we take advantage of times of rest and relaxation and leisure. He ordained restful and enjoyable things like feasts. He ordained enjoyable things like laughter. He ordained other enjoyable, pleasurable activities into our human makeup as well. But even rest and relaxation is designed to keep us healthy for the purpose of continuing our God-given task of glorifying Him and spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Time is a precious gift from God. It is not guaranteed. It is a priceless commodity to be handled with care. James 4, 13. Y'all probably are familiar with this passage. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go out into such and such a town and spend a year there or trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. That phrase, if the Lord wills, needs to become a regular part of our vocabulary when we talk about what we want to do, what we're planning on doing, and what we dream of doing. I want to do this. I can't wait to do this. I hope to do this. I plan to do this. And we need to be putting that phrase in there every time we say something like that, if the Lord wills, and keep our mind on the fact that we are not in control of our epoch, of our time. God is in control of it. God is in control of our kairos, and if He wills, we will do this or that. And so that phrase, if the Lord wills, that, it requires wisdom to live that way and to rest on God's will that way, which is the next point that Paul brings us to. The person who walks the vigilant walk of wisdom, number one, recognizes that time is a precious God-given commodity to be used for His glory, but number two... This person discerns God's desires and plans, and he submits to them. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What does it mean to know the Lord's will? It's a very misunderstood concept in American Christianity today. Because here's what I think we think. We think that God's playing a game with us. And kind of like the games you play when you were a kid. Maybe kind of like Marco Polo. We yell out, Marco! And God's somewhere going, Polo! 
and we're somehow trying to find his will. Or, or maybe the game you ever played where someone hides something and you, you, the person who knows where it is sits there and says, okay, you're getting warmer, warmer, warmer. Oh, colder, colder, colder. And I think that's the way we envision God sometimes. That, that, that he's this, this big father in the sky who has hidden something called his will, put it under a pillow somewhere, and we're out there just kind of walking along, and he's going, warmer, warmer, warmer. Oh, you're getting colder, you're getting colder, you're colder. God doesn't hide his will. God makes his will very plain and very clear. The Bible doesn't present God's will in that sort of mystical way. Quite simply, the Bible presents following God's will as discerning what God desires by looking at what he has clearly said and then submitting to it and doing it, obeying what he said. A, a great example of this is, is the difference between the way Zechariah responded to the angel and the way Mary responded to the angel in, in the Christmas uh, passages that we're so familiar with, with the, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist by the angel and the foretelling of the birth of Christ by the angel. And, and Zechariah hears the clear word of God through an angel, of all things, and wants something more than that. How am I going to know this is what really is going to happen? Instead of obeying and submitting to it. Mary, on the other hand, obeyed and submitted. Now she did have a question. She, she wanted to know, how are you going to do this, Lord? This is amazing. She believed, and God gives her a little bit more information. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be pregnant with a child. But Zechariah was, what happened to him? He was struck mute because he was unwilling to believe the word that was clearly given to him. So that's us. We have a very clear word, more clear than an angelic voice, right here. Very clear. And we oftentimes are like Zechariah, God, give me a little more. How do I, you know, how's that going to happen? Really, Lord? Really? That's your will right there? I need more. And we act like Zechariah, and we think God's some sort of a Easter bunny who's placed an egg out there that says his will on it, and we just got to find it. That's not the way the Bible gives us God's will. God's will is not some mysterious, mystical game of charades where we try to unlock God's hidden uh, plan through codes and signs and feelings. I dare say what passes for discerning God's will today in much of contemporary Christianity is more akin to pagan divination than it is a biblical understanding of following God's will. Let me give you the definition of divination from the Webster's Dictionary. It says, a practice of seeking knowledge of the future or the unknown by supernatural means. God, give me a sign. Lord, if I walk out and it's raining today, I'll know that you want me to do this. I once heard a missionary tell a very, in a very serious way how they had decided to become missionaries and go overseas. He said that they were, they were wrestling with it, they were wrestling with God calling them to go overseas, and they decided to go take a vacation to sort of work through some of this, and they were on the beach, and he, a wave hit him and knocked his glasses off. And his glasses fell into the ocean. And he looked over at his wife and said, Honey... I'm going to reach down, and if I find my glasses, that means God wants us to go overseas. But if they're gone, then we're just going to stay here. And he reached down, and he pulled up his glasses. Whoa! God's will! 
That is divination. And God, according to Scripture, abhors divination. He can't stand divination. Because divination takes you away from his clear word and into speculation, into places where Satan loves to put voices in your head. You need to do this. You're going to be at so much more peace if you do this. You just need a sign. Ask God for a sign. You need something. Something just to appear to you. Like a rainbow. Something like that. Yeah. Don't spend hours in the Word praying and weeping over what God says clearly here. No. Look for rainbows. Look for signs. It's called divination. The tragedy of the modern hear God's voice movement that so many of us are straining to hear God in some sort of mystical, emotional, or experiential way that we miss what he's already said so clearly. Now, before we go any further, I want to talk a little bit about God's will here and, and give us a couple of theological categories, okay, so we can try to grasp this understanding of God's will a little bit more. First of all, theologians talk about there being the, the will, God's will of decree, okay, God's will of decree or God's sovereign will. Okay, this would be um, God's divine purposes that cannot be changed, hindered, upended, God's sovereign plans and purposes that will come to pass, no questions asked. Job 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Greek word in the New Testament referring to God's will of decree is the word bole. Okay, it refers to God's sovereign will, God's divine purposes. Psalm 135.6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. This is sometimes also referred to God's secret will. God's will of decree. Then there's also God's will of command or God's permissive will. Okay? God's will of command or God's permissive will is his desire for all of mankind that may or may not be obeyed or kept. Okay? The other Greek word used for the will of God is thelema, which is used 50 times in the New Testament referring to God's desire and God's wishes for his people. This is oftentimes referred to as God's revealed will. God has revealed his desires, his desire that man do or not do certain things, and we can say... It's against his will, for example, to steal or to murder. We know it is not God's will that you go out and rob somebody today or to kill somebody today or to do a thousand other things that God's made very clear and revealed in his word. This is the primary use of the word will in the New Testament, right here. God's revealed clear will of what he wants for his people that he has laid out in his word. His desires, that's why I use the word desire up there, to discern God's desires and plans. He permits that will to be acted against sometimes. Obviously, there are people that are murdering out there. If it's God's will that people don't murder, how come there's people murdering? Because this understanding of God's will is his permissive will, and we obey it or we don't obey it. But even still, even when his permissive will is acted against, at the same time, his will of decree, his sovereign will, is still intact and never gets off track. That's what's so glorious and mysterious about God. His sovereign will is still perfectly on track even when we don't do his will, but not when we don't obey what his word tells us to obey. A great example is the best example of this is right off the bat in Scripture, right in the book of Genesis, Genesis 50, 
Verse 20, you know the story. Uh, Joseph's brothers have sinned against him. They've sinned against God. They've done this horrible thing. Now um, Jacob passes away. They're scared. Joseph's going to get back at them. And this is what Joseph says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant it. That means you planned it. You purposed it. You had a design, which was evil. You, my brothers, you designed evil against me. But God worked it out for good. Nope, that's not what it says. It says, but God meant it. He uses the same word. God designed it. God purposed it. God planned it for good. You're the one that's guilty of sin, not God. But God planned it and worked it all out. Did more than work it out. He purposed it. According to this, to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So God's sovereign will is always intact, even when his will of decree is violated by us, and we do it every day in some way or another. So this discerning that we are to do is in regards to God's clear, revealed will of command. His secret sovereign will of decree, we just trust and we submit to that. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Secret things belong to God. We can't explain them. We can't explain the Katrinas of the world. We can't explain tsunamis of the world. It's God's secret will. We have some clues as to why these things happen, but we are to... Obey him with what he has revealed for us to do. So how does all this help us? Well, quite simply, the will that God calls for us to follow in this text and in almost every text in the New Testament is that we discern his very clear, commanded, revealed will that's in his word. He has clearly laid out the truth in his word and we are to hear it, submit to it, and obey it. This is what Paul is telling us to do here. We obey it and we please God in the process. Earlier in verse 10, it talks about pleasing God. Kind of a parallel verse to this verse. We discern what is pleasing to God. We discern His will. God is not silent about what pleases Him, about what He desires for us. He has told us what He wishes for us and He desires for us, and that is that we be holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, listen to this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is the will of God? It doesn't get much clearer than 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. The will of the Lord is this, that you be holy. That you walk in his word, that you know what he's teaching you, that you obey it, that you submit to it, and that you be conformed into the image of Christ. That's his will for your life. That you be conformed to the image of Christ. We seek God's will by sacrificially submitting ourselves to his lordship, and then out of genuine love for our Lord, with our hearts saturated and renewed, our minds renewed with his word, we obey him and we walk in his desires. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, you're giving it all up to God. You love God. You're sacrificing to him. 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, same word, the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We follow God's will, it boils down to this, we follow God's will by following his word. Apart from God's spirit working through God's word, God has not promised to use any other means to guide us, and therefore we should not expect that of him. Knowing God's word and knowing God's will through his word requires that we get a solid grasp of his word. It's a sign of our maturity. The greater grasp we have of this word, the more you're going to know God's will for your life. It's really that simple. You don't spend time in this word. Don't expect to have any clue what God wants you to do in any part of your life. Any part of your life. If you're not in this word, don't get out there and get mad at God. God, you haven't shown me what to do. He has shown you what to do. You just haven't been in it. It's very clear. It's right here. Colossians 4.12. This is Epaphras. Talking about Epaphras. He's a great saint who prayed for the church in, in Colossae. He says, Epaphras was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Your understanding of God's will is a sign of maturity. Hebrews 5.14. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the will. Your holiness. You distinguish good from evil. Is it good for me to watch this show? No, it's not because I know it's not because it's right here. It makes it very clear. I don't watch that stuff. Is it good for me to do this? Well, let me examine God's word. Discernment, maturity comes from spending time in this book right here. That's God's will that you distinguish between good and evil, dark and light, and walk in the truth. So let me kind of sum it up here. I know I'm going a little bit late. God's will, number one, is revealed authoritatively in what? His word. Number two, we then read it, study it, pray over it, meditate upon it, memorize it, love it. I think the main reason most of us aren't in his word as much as we need to is we just don't love it. Let's just be honest. I just don't, I just don't love reading it. Boy, I pray for all of us that we would grow in maturity and this thing would become so sweet to our lips that we can't stand not being in it. Number three, then, okay, with that word saturating our life that, like that will in turn drive us to a deeper love of Christ and a heartfelt, love-driven desire to obey His will and His word more than our own will. More than our own will. Here's the deal. A lot of times when we're saying, God, what's your will for me? We're hoping that God lines up His will with our will. I really want this. I, can, I hope we get to go here. I really want this person to be like this. I, and we have our will all lined up, and we go to God and we ask for him to reveal us his will, and we're hoping that he lines up his will according to what we want. When you're in the word of God and seeking his will in a biblical way, the opposite happens. Your will becomes totally secondary. And God's will is primary. And he conforms you to his word, to his way, George Mueller, if anybody knows the story of George Mueller, I mean, this guy spent a lot of time in prayer, made decisions like, let's build this orphanage without any money, and God will provide. 
I mean, crazy decisions, radical decisions. Crazy love, radical. George Mueller wrote the book way before David Platt or, or um, Chan. I almost said Jackie Chan. Francis Chan. Way before Jackie Chan, too. Different book, I guess. He, he said this when someone asked him, how do, you, how do you know God's will? He said, well, the first thing is I get my own will out of the way. It's the first thing I do is I get my own will out of the way. And hopefully, okay, if we are walking with Christ in love with him, then we begin to act out of love and his desires become our desires. What does the psalmist say? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're delighting in Jesus... Because you, this book, this book gets you on fire for Jesus and you're delighting in him. Then the desires of your heart will be lined up with his. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Number four. By the way, that's the difference between a Pharisee and a follower. You see, a Pharisee does God's will because, well, I'm good. I can do God's will. A follower does God's will because he's in love with God. He's in love with Christ. Four, that will then, if we're doing those things, that will result in lives, listen to this, where most of the following of God's will is something that's just a natural outflow of our life. It's the fruit. I think John Piper said that 95% of following God's will is stuff we don't even recognize. We're not even consciously thinking about. Do I do this? Do I do that? We don't sit there and pray, Lord, is it your will that I be honest with this person I'm talking to on the phone? Can I put you on hold one second? I need to find the Lord's will here, whether or not I'm going to tell you the truth or not, or I'm going to mislead you. So hold on one second. We don't stop and think about those things. Those things happen. They flow out. And either they are flowing out of a life that's centered on God's word, and therefore they are consistent with his will, or they're flowing out of our will, which is so deceitful and corrupt that we are going to do those things without even thinking about them. We'll hang up that phone before we even realize, you know what? I just told a lie, and I misled that person. Without even thinking about it, it just flowed out of me. Most of following God's will is a natural flow This should be happening of a life that is totally connected and saturated with God's word. Then, fifthly, okay, with all those other things in place, we then, out of a love for Christ and his word, prayerfully and properly apply biblical truth to all situations that may or may not be specifically addressed in his word. Let me stress the word properly. We properly apply his word to any situations that may not be specifically mentioned in here. I say properly because there's people who are, you've done it, you've done it don't lie about this, because I've done it. You're, you're desperate, you're, you open up that Bible and you just find the verse. Boom! God, what do you want me to do? Boom! And you find some verse and we go, oh yeah, that's my new life verse. It may be talking about some wicked king or something for all we know. I'm not even paying attention to what we're, what we're listening to. You, you, you've heard the joke. Someone opens up the their Bible and ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? And they put their finger on Judas went out and hung himself. Okay, that would be an improper use of God's word. Oh, well, I guess it's God's will that I go hang myself. Okay, that's an extreme example, but we do it all the time. We just rip these verses out of context. One of the ones we rip out of context is the Jeremiah 29, 11. One of our favorites, right? Everyone, one of your favorite verses, for honest. 
Well, I think there's principles there in that verse that we apply to our life, but sometimes we take that verse and make it mean a lot more than, we put a lot more on that verse than what it really means because it's actually a letter to the Israelites speaking about what God's going to do when he brings them out of exile. It wasn't specifically written to our time, our place. Now, we can gather principles about God and his faithfulness from that text and, yes, apply that to our lives, but be careful. Properly applying God's word is so, so important. So this brings us to the question, well, how about the big decisions of life? Who do I marry? What car should I buy? Should we sell our house? Should we buy that dog? Should I take that job? Should we have another child? Should we homeschool, public school, private school? The big decisions in life. Well, how, how do we do this? Here's the deal. We operate according to the truth that God set forth in his word, and we apply scripture to that situation. And if we're doing these other five things I mentioned, then you do what you want to do. Because if you're doing these things, then your, your desires are going to be lined up with God's, and you do what you want to do. The reason I'm scared to tell most of us, including myself, to just do what you want to do is because I'm not lined up like that. And I end up screwing things up when I do what I want to do. And so, if you are properly in the Word of God, maturing the way Paul wants us to mature, then you do what you want to do when you've prayerfully considered God's Word and applied it to every situation. I think the problem is we're oftentimes asking the wrong question. It's like asking someone, what's the color of the equator? Well, is the equator real? Yes, the equator's there. Are colors real? Yes, colors are real. But the question makes no sense. The equator doesn't have a color. Well, I want to know what the color of the equator is. Tell me the color of the equator. We ask nonsense questions to God sometimes, I believe. The wrong questions. Okay? Let me give you an example. Who do you marry? Who do I marry? Okay, when I was finishing up college, I opened up God's Word... Heather's name is not in there. Who do I marry? <laughs> I'm seeing Delilah's and other ones. No, Heather's in here. How, how, do we, how do we make decisions like that? Well, it's the wrong question. Do I marry Heather? The question is, what are the virtues of a godly woman? Okay, what, what are the virtues of a woman who loves the Lord with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength? What makes a true woman truly beautiful? I ask those questions. Instead of asking, do you want me to marry that person or that person or that person? We're asking the wrong question. What's the color of the equator? Makes no sense. Ask what the Bible has clearly revealed. Is she a godly person? Is he a godly person? What are the marks of a godly man and a godly woman? Is that the kind of husband I want? Is that the kind of wife I want? Because I want it to line up with God's word. Is that the kind of father I want in my home? Those are the questions we ask. We don't ask whether or not to buy a Ferrari. It's not in the Bible. No cars are in the Bible. The godly principle we ask is, how do you want us to use our resources, Lord? I, there's principles here about resources that you've entrusted us with. And so what do I do with these resources? And I look here and I see God saying things about resources. Does it line up with, with buying the Ferrari? And the answer may be different for different people because I don't know how much resources he's given you. Just like I don't know your epic of time, I don't know your resources either. Only God knows that. And so you make that decision, you filter it through the word of God, and then decide. Then do what you want to do. Just make sure you've filtered it through God's word and that you're lined up with God. How about what method to use in the schooling of our children? Hmm. 
There's one I can step on today, right? What? What is the Bible specific about that? I, I have not found the word homeschool in here yet. I will, I will scour the NCFIC website to see if it's in there somewhere. But I have not found the word homeschool in here yet. But I have found godly principles, expectations for parents. What God expects of parents in regards to their responsibility to make sure the next generation loves God and knows his word. That's easy to find. That's very easy to find. So, so many times we're asking the wrong question. And do you see how asking the wrong question can lead you to Phariseeism as well? Because you've put your flag in the wrong camp. Instead of the biblical camp of God's word, you put your, your, your flag in a camp that may or may not be exactly what God wants you to do based upon your, your life and where, where he's put you and what he's entrusted you with. I'm convinced there's some moms that have no business homeschooling. And God hasn't equipped them to do it. There's others that are equipped to do it and called to do it. We prayerfully apply the scripture, asking questions like, is the question at hand clearly prohibited or commanded in scripture? So if you're asking a really stupid one, like, like this, actually, this really happened to me, where I had someone in my office at a church I was at once telling me they really felt that they need to continue in the affair that they were having because they felt it was God's will. Okay? Really? Because I don't think God contradicts himself in that sort of fashion. Because it's very clear that the Bible prohibits what you're doing. So the first question we ask as we come to these things is, is the question at hand clearly prohibited or commanded in God's word? So, okay? So apply that to anything else. Schooling. Okay, if you're going to put your kids in a, in a certain school that's clearly a, a school that's pagan and teaching Nazi doctrines or something down the road. I don't know, let's say the Nazis start a school in Harbin's. The Harbin's Nazi school for young, impressionable minds. All right? And they start it. Should I put my child in that school? Pretty easy to answer that one. I know that's a really stupid illustration. Is the question at hand, is the question at hand beneficial? Is it beneficial and helpful to my walk and to others' walk? That's another question to ask. Is this beneficial? Because you don't live individualistically your life affects your family and your church family is this beneficial it may not be bad at all it may line up with god's word but there's other questions we ask is this benefiting the body of christ at large because there may be something equally valid in god's scripture that is better for me to do in this particular situation is the question at hand christ exalting and is it under his lordship boy that's the one we really need to be asking as we prayerfully sift our decisions through Scripture, we also consider things like providential circumstances. Now, God speaks authoritatively through the Word, but God also providentially shuts doors, shuts down things. That's okay. We consider things like providential circumstances, that God works things out or doesn't work things out, and we keep on going. We keep on seeking His Word. We want to do what He wants us to do. And we'd also don't discount the need for us as a body to, to take wise counsel from one another. There are, more, there are those who are in greater maturity than others in the church, and we need one another. And we may be different maturity on different issues. And so we go, hey, I'm praying through this. I'm really thinking through this. This is how I see it lining up with Scripture. Would you please give me your thoughts? Would you pray for me? We do those things as well. 
God has given believers common sense and wisdom. Then we prayerfully, then after, if we have gone prayerfully to the one place that God has spoken decisively, which is his word, clearly and infallibly, and we've tested our decision by that standard, then we do what we want to do. And then after that, though, we keep testing it according to God's word and prayer because we can make mistakes. We, we, we're sinners. And, you know, I thought this lined up with God's word, but now I'm seeing it. No, it's not. This isn't quite what we should be doing. Matter of fact, I think that's one of the biggest problems for churches, pastors. Because pastors have, all pastors, have egos, just like everyone else has an ego. And you, you set the church off in a direction, yeah, gung-ho, woo! And then you keep testing those decisions by the word of God, and God might tell you, no, that's not really lining up with what I want, for your church at least, at this time, in this place, and having to make those decisions. We keep testing these decisions we make by the word of God. What about feelings, and what about peace? Well, the the Bible speaks of a peace that passes all understanding. I'm a big peace person. I mean, that's the way I used to always discern God's will. Peace, peace, peace. Then I got to a point in my life where there seemed to be no peace. And I thought, okay, there's got to be a better method. What about peace? Well, that peace that passes all understanding, that is the fruit. That is the fruit of someone who's been in the Word and praying. It's talking about in the context of prayer. That is the fruit that comes from us seeking God's will in the proper way. We get it reversed. I want peace. I want peace. I want peace. God, give me peace about moving here, doing this, whatever. Give me peace, 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 peace. But we haven't been in the word of God. You're not going to get the peace. The peace isn't going to come. You may get something, but it's not the peace that passes all understanding. Proper understanding of God's will will keep us from the common yet foolish idea that if we can be outside of God's will, okay, that, or that we can be outside of God's will and mess things up. Like God is some sort of a, of, um, I don't know, uh, let's go back to one of our other illustrations. Let's say he's like the Easter Bunny and he's hidden his will. But we find someone else's will. Uh-oh. So-and-so married the wrong person. They opened the wrong egg. They were supposed to go over here. They didn't. That's foolishness. The Bible gives us no category for that type of thinking. Matter of fact, that is more akin to to Ray uh, Bradbury's short story. You may be familiar with it, A Sound of Thunder, where a time traveler, okay, I haven't read the book, I've just read about it, or a time traveler kills a butterfly. He goes back in time, kills a butterfly accidentally, then goes back to time where his normal, his, his whatever, his present era and everything's messed up because he killed one butterfly and it caused all this chain reaction of things that short story is based on what they call chaos theory chaos theory says you mess one thing up or you do one thing and it affects everything else and the world is in a constant state of chaos chaos theory is diametrically the opposite of what the bible teaches us about god that god is in absolute sovereign control he's not up there going oh man now that she married the wrong person, well, now the person who's supposed to marry her is going to marry the wrong person. And, but I'm going to reset this whole thing. It doesn't work that way. That's foolishness. Absolute foolishness. But that's the way we, you've got to find the one. You've got to find that, that perfect thing that God wants you to do. Tell you what, stick with his word and do what you want to do. That's God's will. This is so liberating. Freedom from fear, freedom from wasted time. Satan loves to confuse people on God's will. 
He wants us seeking the wrong places. He wants us questioning things in retrospect. That's the way he gets us to waste our time. We just talked about making the best use of this commodity called time. You want to waste your time? Go into these mental loop-de-doops with Ray Bradbury. That would be a tremendous waste of your time. Sit there and fuss and whine and complain about God not working his will out according to your will. You will waste your time. Instead of saying, God, what do you want me to do right now? And let me get in your word and let me be in your word so much that I know exactly what you want me to do. It's not a question of whether or not it's your will that I go over and talk to my neighbor and share my faith with him. I know you want me to do that. Grant me the grace and power to do it. Satan loves us just questioning. God's will is that we hear his word loud and clear, and in doing so we obey him and we grow in holiness. He wants us to walk with him as he sanctifies us. And how do we walk with God in sanctification? We do so by being controlled by the Holy Spirit, which is the third point that I have no time to get to today. But that's, you can go ahead and fill in the blanks. We'll hit this next week. And there will be four, four outworkings of this. Okay, the person who walks the vigilant walk of wisdom seeks to be self-controlled in all things by submitting oneself to the control of God's Spirit. My question for us this morning, let's just look at the first two points. Let's look at that life we're living. Are we wasting time? Are we off on some crazy pursuit trying to find God's will, not the way he told us to find his his will? Look closely at how you walk. Look closely at how you walk. Because the days are very, very evil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we recognize that we are such fools. Oh Lord, we cling to the old clothes of the old walk of the old way of life. We cling to those clothes because until the day that we are with you in your presence and our sanctification is complete, we are going to have struggles. We are going to have battles. And God, I praise you that You are working in us to sanctify us, to make us into the image of your Son, Jesus. And our prayer this morning is that we would be good stewards of our time. The days are so evil. And Lord, I confess to you right now, I have wasted my time. A lot of it. A lot of it. Time that I will be accountable for. Hours lost days lost, years lost. And all I can do is pray for your grace to move forward and to be a person who takes this text seriously and looks for ways to take advantage of the opportunities that are before me. Lord, you've brought two at least this week into my life that I'm very aware of that I need to take advantage of. But I know you've brought a lot more. I just haven't seen them because I haven't been walking in wisdom. I haven't been walking circumspectly. And God, I pray that you would keep all of us in your word I know it's a struggle for some in here to read your word it just is it's a struggle for all of us to be consistent because we're distracted we oversleep we have plenty of other things to do an hour of a television show is a lot more appealing than an hour in your word and so God we need you we need you to change our affections to work in our heart Lord make us to love your word And in doing so, we'll love the Savior. And in loving Jesus and in loving you, Father, you will give us the desires of our heart. 
because our desires will change. And no longer is that thing that we've been praying for and getting mad at you about so important. And instead, you've put new things on our heart, new desires. No longer is that big question mark that's been hanging over our head causing us anxiety. No longer are we going to live in anxiety. We're going to live in peace now. A peace that passes all understanding because we've turned it over to you. We know that you are a God who has a sovereign will of decree that can't be broken. And you've given us clearly, clearly what your will of command is. And it's our desire to obey you. So God, help us to be those type of people. I'm so, I'm so short. So, I've fallen so short of that. As I would guess that most of us have. Lord, we pray that you do a work in our hearts. Change us now as we respond in song and we respond with offerings and prayers. And Lord, that we would just be people who honor you in all that we do. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in, into whose image we are being made every day. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you would. We're going to sing a song you're very familiar with. How great thou art. We're going to respond. I know it's late. We've got classes to go to, but we're going to go ahead and respond. And then we have a couple of announcements.